0: The following program is brought to you by Caltech.
1: Okay, thanks, Michelle. Um, so I'm. This uh, little short course is starting us off on a week-long workshop that uh, several of us have been planning for a little while now. The other uh, team leads are Mike Seifert, uh, Dayton Jones, uh, Steve Frilineto, and Tony Reedhead. Uh, and we're. Uh, it's actually it's easy to introduce this workshop, I think, and the short course, uh, following on the heels of the Cal review where we all saw. Uh, our expectations that studying the early universe, what they called cosmic dawn in the decadal review, is one of the top priorities for astrophysics in the coming decade. And it was with that uh, kind of motivation in mind that we, we wanted to, to plan this week and start off by looking at uh, how we could probe some of the atomic and molecular physics uh, in the early universe, ranging from the recombination era and maybe even slightly before the recombination era all the way through the dark ages, first light, reionization, Uh, There's a lot of interesting physics uh, that that takes place then and there's been a lot of interesting work going on in the last five or six years uh, developing some of the theory and and instrumentation and observations to try to probe this era. So that's the focus of our short course this morning and for those in the actual workshop that are going to stick around all week and and think about this some more, our challenge will be to try to figure out how we might go about tackling uh, some of the observations that would enable the cool science we're going to hear about in the next three hours. Okay, so we have four speakers uh, coming up. All of them are at the core of this field in, in their various ways, and so we'll we'll uh, spend the next uh, few hours uh, getting a really hands-on, uh, first-hand uh, explanation of, of uh, atomically and molecularly and ionically, if that's a word, what's going on in the early universe. So uh, it turns out a lot of these uh, signatures manifest themselves in the radio millimeter and submillimeter part of the spectrum, which is how we uh, uh, kind of came on this focusing theme of CMB uh, spectral distortions from the early universe uh, to kind of keep our, our uh, uh, put some bounds on, on what we might try to, to learn about today. So uh, as Kis mentioned uh, or as, as Michelle mentioned this is a dual purpose uh, short course we're starting off our workshop and it's open to everyone just uh, for our own educational benefit. Uh, so why don't we move along uh, we have one update to our schedule today. Uh, When our announcement or flyer for the short course came out, we had uh, Rashid Sunayev on the program as our first speaker to tell us about uh, some of the intrinsic uh, spectral features in the CMB, deviations from a black body. Uh, Unfortunately, due to a family emergency, uh, Rashid had to cancel his trip at the last minute. But we're very, very fortunate to have uh, Jens uh, Kluba here, uh, uh, who is the only other person in the world capable of delivering probably uh, even more expert uh, coverage of this topic, seeing as how he was a graduate student of Rushd's, and he graduated in 2005, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Uh, So a lot of the work we're hearing about, uh, it was his work originally as it was. Um, Currently, he's at CETA, where he's a postdoctoral research scholar. He's been there for, is it two years now, three years? Two years. Uh, And so we're very pleased to have him here today to give our opening talk. So let's start uh, Jens.
0: Yeah, many thanks, uh, Jude. Um, I'm really—it's uh, a great pleasure for me to be here, and uh, I'm very honored that I uh, was asked to give the introduction on mu y and uh, um, the recombination spectrum. Uh, mu and y, of course, is not my work, so um, it will—you know—it will just be in the second part when I'm really going to talk about uh, the stuff I have been doing with Rashid uh, during my um, postdoc. Uh, Rashid was very uh, sorry that he couldn't come here. Uh, he was really excited about the, this workshop and, you know, to discuss with observers uh, who really understand how to go ahead with, uh, you know, improving mu and y constraints possibly and also digging for these lines. And uh, he sends us uh, his regards and wishes us a great and successful workshop here. Um, I myself also had a small disaster when I got the email from Jude uh, that, uh, yeah, I should give the lecture here. My laptop died, and uh, I hope that that. Uh, didn't uh, doesn't really compromise uh, the lecture here, and also that everything will go well because it's the same very same laptop here. Anyway, good. So um, I mentioned already my talk is going to be uh, in t- basically in two parts. Uh, first, I will talk about the mu and y uh, type distortions, and you know what uh, what we know about them, where they come from, and uh, or where, where people think they come from, and, and what is the physics behind that. And then I will uh, switch gears and go to the recombination epoch, uh, Reg of 1000, and explain how these recombination lines appear and uh, what one maybe uh, will be able to learn from them. Um, I will, tomorrow I'm giving also another talk, a uh, more detailed talk on the recombination spectrum and what is really the exciting stuff you can do with it. Uh, I will just at the very end try to, you know, give a small sneak preview uh, on what I'm going to speak tomorrow about. Okay, so before starting really with the Spectrum, I just wanted to show this uh, beautiful map from the uh, um, WMAP-7, the full sky map of the CMB anisotropies, and we all heard about it uh, many times and saw it many times, and uh, I don't need to convince you that there is a great deal of things we learned about cosmology from this. It's just a a chart uh, reminding, you know, the power spectrum we we learned, uh, or with the help of CMB, we learned uh, details about the composition of the universe, and now even with CMB based alone. we know that there's helium in the universe. Um, all very great science and has been you know pursued by many people for you know, the last past decades. Uh, a lot of work went into that and we are all looking forward to the first results from Planck as well, um, which will be coming up you know first first uh, science uh, output will be next year in January, beginning of next year, February maybe. And um, here's just a full sky map as it has been recently released by the, WM, uh, by the uh, Planck uh, uh, team, and we can see here the galaxy and here's also some wrinkles from the uh, cosmic microwave background that CMB be anisotropies. And we all know that that's going to be great science uh, coming out of that and everything is working well. However, I'm not going to talk about the anisotropies because uh, there's another channel which people have sort of the past 20 years or 30 years haven't been talking about extremely much, which is the spectrum. And uh, from Kobe from Firas we know that, you know, the CMB uh, in, in any direction of the sky is a very, very close to perfect black body. Uh, you know, so perfect that you cannot even see the error bars uh, on this uh, you know, comparison between uh, observations and theory. And uh, the temperature of the CMB is known to be you know, 2.7 uh, 2.5 Kelvin. And there's, here's already these uh, y and mu parameters appearing, which I'm going to explain in more detail later. Uh, but what is, uh, as much as is concerned now for us, it's just very small room for some spectral distortions already from the COBE virus results. However, people have, have sort of stopped after, after this. And uh, it's ther- therefore, it's really great that we are you know, getting together and trying to discuss if there's any possible ways to go ahead. So why would one expect any distortions in the CMB? Well, if you, if you just have full thermodynamic equilibrium, which is certainly a good assumption at extremely high redshifts, you know, 10 to the 9, 10 to the 8 or so, uh, then, you know, the CMB the, will be just given by a black body. Uh, this is not e- affected by the expansion, and uh, just from the temperature uh, determines all the, you know, important things like the photon number uh, density and also the, um, uh, number, the energy density. Um, and, well, if you have, if you allow for some uh, perturbation, uh, disturbance uh, of this full equilibrium, uh, by, for example, injection of energy, which means you heat the electrons up, uh, and the, photons are, the photon field is colder than the electrons, then you have to interact and try to, um, you know, digest this kind of energy which was injected. And this uh, kind of um, this epoch will, will take this will take some time. There will be some uh, spectral distortions arising, deviations from the pure black, black body, which then will, will be thermalized uh, by processes which are, uh, you know, important uh, to to this thermalization which I will explain a bit more uh, um, in what follows. And um, so the question which I'm first going to d- just address is uh, what is actually, what kind of processes should lead or could lead to some energy injection, and how, uh, how do the spectral distortions look like? So here's a sort of a list uh, of things which, um, which have been discussed in the literature and also w- which were mentioned in some early papers. So the first simple example you can think about is just the electrons or the matter has a different, different adiabatic index with the expansion. It scales like 1 plus z to the square, while, while the CMB photons square like, um, go like 1 plus z only. So that means that uh, the photons are actually continuously cooled all the time, which means that you're extracting energy from the photon field. But obviously, because the heat capacity of the photon field is extremely huge, you don't care about that. It's just going to lead to really, really tiny distortion. There's a very small change in the energy density, um, you know. Uh, but this process is continuously happening, and uh, in principle should be there, tiny. Another simple example, electron-positron annihilation, the epoch, uh, at 10 to the, uh, of 10 to the 9, 10 to the 8. Um, this leads to a uh, huge injection of entropy. Um, however, that's happening at really, really early times, where you basically erase everything, and you don't care about it as well. But what about, for example, uh, these possibilities of decaying or annihilating uh, relic particles. Uh, there could be some, you know, relic particle which has a long lifetime and which, which injects uh, energy at sufficiently low redshifts, um, specifically uh, at redshifts below s- 10 to the 6 or so. I will explain this also a bit more uh, later. Um, and there could be the possibility of annihilating particles. People have been discussing annihilating dark matter and. Uh, all the Sommerfeld enhancement uh, stuff in, uh, recently uh, has been uh, having quite some renaissance or some uh, interest, and um, here it will be important how energy is actually transferred to the medium, what kind of decay channels you have. Is, is this if this is just going to be neutrons for uh, uh, neutrinos, for example, nothing is really depo- deposited uh, to the universe, but if there's a lot of electrons, you will ha- heat up the medium and you will uh, see some distortions, and then. Uh, Bernard Carr is one of the uh, big fans of these evaporating black holes, which could lead to energy injection at different redshifts. And then also uh, there could be some uh, phase transition type things uh, in connection with superconducting strings. Um, Chris Thompson and and, uh, Jerry Ostreicher wrote about that. And all these things uh, could, could, uh, this this could, uh, again, it's just going to heat the the medium and, and lead to some perturbation of the equilibrium. And then there's something which is certainly there, there's dissipation of primordial acoustic waves just uh, because of the, the damping of these uh, oscillations in the medium. And that leads to some energy release, uh, which should actually not be completely negligible, maybe leading to a wide distortion or mu distortion of order 10 to minus 7. Then there's all these signatures from the low-redshift epochs, the, uh, the, the signatures from the first supernova releasing their energy, uh, creating shock waves uh, uh, in the medium, and uh, you know all this kind of uh, uh, things related with structure uh, formation. And one of the prominent examples is the Sunil-Seldovich effect, of course, which people are looking for now, and uh, successfully uh, making a lot of progress in that. And then also the effects from reionization. So, uh, how does actually the, um, after convincing you that there is processes which can lead to uh, spectral distortions, uh, how, do, how do you get rid of the spectral distortions? Once you have some perturbation, I told you already that when you inject energy at extremely high redshifts, you don't care, because everything is going to be digested by the, universe, by the uh, processes going on. So how does that work? So first thing you should realize, OK, simple thing. Uh, at high redshifts, everything is completely ionized. You have electrons, protons, and, uh, and your uh, helium atoms. And you get your, um, uh, the processes are in a completely ionized, uh, fully ionized plasma. Then you have uh, the Coulomb interactions, which lead to basically the fact that electrons and other particle distributions are always very close to uh, Maxwell-Boltzmann distributions or uh, relativistic Maxwell-Boltzmann distributions. Down to extremely low redshifts, uh, you get extremely close to full equilibrium distributions in the particles. And then you have your Hubble expansion, which leads to the phot- uh, you know the uh, redshifting of photons. One of the these are just some of the simple uh, ingredients for the thermalization. But uh, what happens if you have some energy injection? So, uh, if you inject just energy, as I said, you, do, you don't um, uh, you don't really ch- you have no process yet which is able to uh, change the number of photons. But you are sort of creating a, uh, an imbalance between the electrons and the photons, uh, photon field. And then uh, one of the things which you get is just the Compton interaction, uh, which leads to the redistribution of photons over frequency, and um, you get you know here's a, here's a nice plot from one of rashid's papers' uh, showing the kernel for some initial fr- uh, frequency fo- uh, some photon at some frequency and uh, then the the temperature of the electrons set to some uh, typical values in uh, you know clusters and you see that there's up scattering going on and there's down scattering going on and all these kind of things lead to uh, redistribution over frequency and uh, this process uh, couples the photons as I mentioned earlier with the uh, scaling of the of the temperature of the uh, medium couples the photons and the electrons uh, down to very low redshifts, uh, very close to, they are very close in equilibrium, uh, temperature-wise. And uh, the um, the first distortion, which we, which uh, which was already mentioned, is the this uh, y-type distortion, which is actually coming from this kind of interaction when the y parameter is not extremely large, when uh, the interaction is not really uh, able to lead to full equilibrium uh, distribution in the photon field just by the redistribution of photons. But you're just getting this kind of upscattering. Here is uh, sort of the, the, the typical Sunyov-Selvich uh, um, uh, effect uh, d- depicted. So you see that uh, photons, the, the initial black body spectrum, gets just upscattered by the hot electrons. And uh, this is this typical formula which we all uh, have been encountering with the Sunyov-Selvich effect. So I mentioned already that when you have just redistribution of photons, that doesn't that conserves particle number, photon number in particular. But if you say you um, you fix the energy density of the photon field, then if you want to have full equilibrium, you should have a particular number density of photons as well. Which means you should find some process which is able to adjust this if you inj- injected some energy and change the energy density. And uh, the first thing you can come up with is just Bremsstrahlung, um, where you know you just uh, uh, create uh, an additional photon in the interaction with a, a free pro- proton or helium atom, uh, helium nucleus. And uh, this leads to the production of, fo- of photons at low frequencies. Uh, so um, most of the photons are produced at low frequencies. And uh, if you make the numbers, you find that the free-free process is actually not very efficient. It uh, doesn't create a lot of photons in the low uh, bio-density universe we live in. So um, if you just do calculations, um, here's another picture of one of the papers of Rashid uh, where they started with a sort of free-free uh, spectrum initially, here at very small y-parameter, and then they evolved uh, uh, incre- with time. So emission is happening, coming here, and then photons get upscattered, and you sl- slowly start to approach uh, along a sequence of, uh, um, of uh, uh, equilibrium spectra with respect to the, um, to the electron scattering. Uh, you you slowly approach a black-body distribution. However, this process is very slow, uh, as I mentioned, because a density is very sm- small in our universe. And that's why at high redshifts, something which hasn't been you know included in these calculations, at high redshifts, redshifts above uh, something like 2 times 10 to the 5, it, actually, the double contents pr- process is, is more important for the production of photons. Again, it leads to basically the same frequency uh, dependent uh, uh, production of photons; however, the scaling with temperature uh, is completely different, and um, uh, you are able to uh, dominate over over production of, uh, the p- production of photons um, over the bremsstrahlung uh, process at high redshifts. So, um, if you put all this together, uh, before doing that, I wanted to just um, contrast the mu and y distortion again and also just uh, explicitly say what, how this y distortion, uh, mu distortions look like. I mentioned the y-distortion and the Soniav-Seldovich type uh, spectral distortion. Here, the, in, this, uh, um, in this case, there's, uh, it is assumed that there has not been any big production of photons at low frequencies yet. Because otherwise, you would see a small uh, return uh, of the distortion to a black body at low frequencies. But we will see this in the next slide, where I'm showing some numerical results. And um, this is, as I said, w- when the e- efficiency of scattering is not yet large enough to really lead to a full kinetic equilibrium with the electrons. However, when you're really efficiently scattering, when you have a large y-parameter, which is happening at high, f- high redshifts, at redshifts above 50,000, you expect that you develop a chemical potential which is constant at high, pre- uh, high frequencies. So um, I mentioned chemical potential is just telling you something about how is the number density of particles uh, in connection with the energy density. And if the chemical potential is non-zero, um, you know that there's either some particles missing or some particles too, too many. And uh, usually, there's particles missing. That's why you need a photon creation process. Um, wh- when you inject energy, you, you enhance the energy density, but you um, have too few photons at hand. Then photons are emitted at low frequencies, and due to the Compton interaction taken up to high frequencies. And this leads to um, the constant uh, chemical potential here, which then with time would just start to uh, develop, um, to become decrease and become smaller. Here I just show for some large y-parameter and also for some large value of mu, um, this, this kind of transition is sort of uh, uh, derived under, under equilibrium assumption, again, uh, with respect to scattering. But uh, we know already that the y parameter is very small, so the distortions are, the shape is clear, but the amplitude is extremely small. And here also for the mu type thing, you see that um, uh, not only the amplitude, but also the width of these lines uh, of, the, of, the, of the feature, which is appearing at rather low frequencies, um, is depending on, on the mu, uh, uh, mu parameter. OK, so if you do this more carefully in numerical simulation, uh, uh, Solutions of the of these uh, diffusion equations, then uh, you get results which look, uh, which I just wanted to um, give a few examples here in, in these slides uh, by work of Burigana, De Zotti, and Danese, uh, Italian people. Um, they started initially with a wide distortion. You can see here. This is temperature and and wavelength. And uh, then, as I explained, you know, as you as you go on with the thermalization process, you produce photons at low frequencies, so things return to a black body shape here, um, uh, which is fixed by the energy balance. And then here you have your, um, you 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 see that there is a sequence of, it evolves from from this shape, you diminish the Wien excess, you return to black body there, and you have your um, you get your uh, your dip at low frequencies. And depending on the amount of energy which is released, you see that the dip, of course, is, you know, depending, is, is, is decreasing because the, the total distortion is getting smaller. But also, it, uh, the, the position of this dip starts to move uh, towards lower, frequency, uh, lower frequencies, larger wavelengths. And uh, this is under the assumption that you start at sufficiently early times, where you really have enough time to decay to a mu-type distortion, which is this, this particular shape. Whereas if you inter- inject at, at energy at um, uh, redshifts somewhere between you know, a few times 10 to the 5 and, 6, uh, and a few thousand, you actually get a mixture between mu and y, because the y parameter is not yet uh, extremely large enough to really f- establish full kinetic equilibrium at high frequencies. And you get some you know, excess uh, deviation here from a black body, plus the plateau here is not developed yet completely the, the equilibrium shape. So the shape of these uh, distortions, uh, if you look at them, these are all not all not um, very different. Of course, amplitude and so on is, is different, and I mentioned the position of the peaks. But you know, you have to look at the details actually to get something out of this. And here, of course, this is a, a bit more distinct uh, shape. Um, with these kind of computations, you can, in principle, by looking at you know the data, the FIRAS uh, data, you can uh, derive uh, constraints on on the uh, amount of energy which has been injected. We're here at low red sh- uh, at high redshifts, very large y parameters. I mentioned that you can basically inject a lot of energy and get rid of it at all. You know, you can just basically recreate the CMB out of nothing, uh, and you still will thermalize things when you go to redshifts. Uh, 10 to the 7 or uh, 10 to the 6. Of course, that's not going to be happening because we know that Big Bang nucleosynthesis would, would be very different then. And at low redshifts, you get rather tight constraints, uh, where here the main source of photons is actually the Bremsstrahlung. Double Compton has been already decaying off. And if you take just Bremsstrahlung emiss- emissivity, you would get a constraint which looks more like this. Because Bremsstrahlung is less efficient, you, you have a tighter constraint. You cannot inject as much uh, energy because you would not be able to digest it anymore. And uh, you can also, by looking at particular scenarios, you can hear some work from Wayne Hu and uh, Pat McDonald, who's still at CETA as well, um, uh, constraints on you know, lifetimes of decaying particles, their mass and uh, abundance. And uh, here the, the cross-section for annihilation of particles uh, um, as a function of, of their mass. And you can see that you can translate this into constraints on these kind of parameters. And I think we will hear hear, uh, some more about that uh, during the meeting as well, and and I think possibly today. Uh, What I wanted to mention um, as a rule of thumb, if you uh, inject some delta rho of a rho of energy into the photon field, you get, at redshifts, let's say, below 50,000, you get a y distortion, which is uh, something has an amplitude of a quarter of that uh, delta rho of rho. for the mu you get uh, something like uh, 1.4 times delta rho over rho uh, and these kind of curves are exactly uh, reflecting these kind of simple estimates where depending on the energy injection mechanism you get different shapes and be- uh, dependencies on redshift okay so uh, just to sort of finish up this uh, this part um, I, I've sort of explained that the amount of energy, uh, you know, this, this is an important parameter of how is this distortion looking l- like. Uh, important thing is that you're fighting with a huge number of photons. Um, there's, you know, so many CMB photons r- relative to uh, bions, 10 to the 9, uh, 2 times 10 to the 9 more photons than bions. And especially at high redshifts, they have a huge energy density. So if you want to perturb something, you have to really do something hard there. In order to get you know 10 to minus 5, even if you would just, uh, as we see in the uh, recombination epoch, if, if you just create some few eV photons per bion, that m- tells you immediately that you will get you know small distortions. I, I will go back to that uh, as well. Then when when the energy is released is important. At high redshifts you have full erasure. You you just you know wipe out any distortion you can you know, digest everything. Uh, then you get the mu era, where the kinetic equilibrium with the uh, electrons is reached at high frequencies. And you're producing photons at low frequencies and moving upwards. And then you get some mixture in between. And at low redshifts, you get a y-type distortion. So these kind of, you know, uh, different types of distortions tell you something, roughly at least, when things has ha- have happened. Um, but uh, I mentioned this as well before, and I think in the next slide I wanted to dwell on it a bit more. Uh, you have to do more, you know, accurate measurements in order to really distinguish any uh, make big distinctions between different scenarios. And then, you know, the time dependence of the energy release is important. Annihilation, you know, particle decay. The numbers of these uh, uh, particles depend, uh, the number densities depend on uh, differently on redshift, and then of course the energy injection rate, rates depend uh, differently on redshift. And then there's also the question, uh, which I brought up already: uh, what are the decay channels? If you have annihilation, is it going into electrons only, for example, or muons? Here's just a plot from uh, the uh, recent work by Finkbeiner, <coughs> basically where they looked at the efficiency of energy deposition at, at redshifts, you know around recombination, and uh, tried to uh, quantify how much energy is actually really transferred to the medium. And uh, these kind of uh, uh, computations. Um, you know these are sort of first improvements of these kind of computations at high redshifts and uh, should be uh, carried on a bit more. And then there's also you know question of transparency of the universe. This is a plot which originally was uh, shown by uh, Chen and Kamynikowski uh, in one of their papers uh, on dark matter annihilation. And uh, you you can see if you inject photons at the given energy at the different different redshifts how the universe is able to let them just go through or uh, absorb them. And uh, here, the different parts are constrained by different processes. And these kind of computations have to be, in principle, uh, done more carefully, especially during recombination epoch. And then there's also the question of global and local energy injection, because all this stuff at high redshifts, that's happening globally. But when you are going to low low redshifts, you also of course inject energy you know in different parts of the universe and you get some angular dependence and this is for example during reionization and also the stoner-seldovich effect everybody knows that these kind of things will also kick in so you get some spatial frequency dependent uh, distortions and um, this is uh, some of the stuff i already said i just wanted to really put it put it out again because um uh, this is uh, this is just to say, okay, we we learned something about uh, energy injection at higher redshifts, but in reality, because of these kind of distortions which we which you get from mu and y are pretty featureless, there's nothing you know nothing really easy to date when these distortions uh, came from. You you can say, okay, mu y uh, these are different, maybe a mixture between y. You can roughly say where something has happened, but uh, you know there's. In principle, much more going into these calculations, which one would wish to uh, constrain. And uh, for that, you have to you know, measure these uh, distortions quite accurately over frequency. And uh, in particular, you should go to rather low frequencies as well, where the main differences are arising. And in terms of the numerical computations, all these results which I showed um, were actually derived uh, using you know, the scenario of sing- single energy injection. Uh, you start with some initial distortion, which you sort of say, this is immediately happening, going to be in this kind of way. And then nothing else. So things like annihilation and uh, uh, you know, decaying particles, uh, these kind of uh, things have not been dealt with really fully, uh, you know, more or less self-consistently in the numerical simulations, uh, computations. And that should be, you know, in principle, done a bit more carefully in order to really make any uh, distinction between different uh, scenarios and heating efficiencies and also you know, the evolution of these non-thermal particles, which are injected initially and then subsequently themselves thermalize and reach the you know, equilibrium distributions. And I, ma- I mentioned in the, uh, in the list of processes which are leading to energy injection, I mentioned um, that, for example, things like the dissipation of um, acoustic waves should lead to some lower limit of you know, a y or mu distortion. So at the, you know, somewhere at 10 to the minus 7 or so, we should want to see something. But there's actually you know, a question. What, what is this level, uh, really? And it would be nice to discuss these kind of things. So if there's no questions to this part, I would just switch to the uh, recombination epoch. Um, of course, we can come back later. So what about cosmological recombination? So first, I wanted to remind everybody about uh, what recombination is about. So at high redshifts, I mentioned the universe is completely ionized. And then it cools down, expands, and cools down, and goes through all these recombination uh, steps. And uh, when you're talking about recombination, you're talking about, you know, redshift of 1,000 and maybe uh, maybe 10,000, because the recombination of helium-2 is actually happening around uh, 7,000, 6,000, 7,000. So physical conditions, I uh, just wanted to uh, put this up so that people really, uh, you know, important, the important things are uh, that the number density of photons is extremely large compared to the bion number density. Uh, there's 10 to the 9, 2 times 10 to the 9 more photons than bions. And that allows even the tail in the black body spectrum to affect the state of the medium and to keep the, you know, uh, uh, the atoms ionized well be- beyond the temperature, which is corresponding to 13.6 kV, uh, which is the recombination uh, threshold. And collisional processes are extremely small in, during the recombination epoch, uh, negligible, because the density of particles is really rather small compared to, you know, stellar atmospheres. Uh, this is nothing, and uh, everything is very strongly dominated by radiative processes and. Um, uh, stimulated emission and stuff like that. And um, I mentioned earlier as well that the electron temperature and matter temperature is strongly coupled by the Gompton process. So the, how does recombination work? The easiest way you think about it, well, equilibrium recombination. Just Saha equilibrium. You get your you know, increase in the number density of hydrogen atoms, the ground state population, and your decrease of uh, free electrons. However, if you use that kind of picture, which goes back to uh, Gamov, uh, then you will get no net emission of photons. Because everything is in full equilibrium all the time. You don't care. Emission and absorption are just erasing everything. That tells you already that if I'm going to talk about some photons, that means it's a non-equilibrium process. But uh, let's, let's go on that a bit more. So how do you recombine? Uh, Here's just a simple picture of a three-level atom. A ground state, 2s, and 2p state, and then the continuum. Uh, where you're asking the question, how do you recombine? How do you get your electron to the ground state? And the first route you think about is, well, just direct recombination to the ground state. Not so good idea, because the photon which is emitted there immediately uh, hits another hydrogen atom, a neutral hydrogen atom in the neighborhood after a very short distance, and just ionizes this hydrogen atom. So this channel is effectively blocked and can be completely taken out. There's no way to recombine directly to the ground state. This is also well known in, in you know, planetary nebula and all these kind of uh, scenarios. Uh, the next route you think about is you just have a recombination to the 2p P state, and then the emission of a Lyman alpha photon. Here the same story applies. Uh, the Lyman alpha photon will be emitted mainly at the resonance and uh, after a very short distance with basically no redshifting between these two interactions. Uh, the photon will just excite another atom, and that immediately means that the atom is going to be ionized because the black body o- uh, occupation number uh, couples very strongly the 2P state to the continuum. So um, the efficiency of this kind of channel is not zero. It's not completely negligible like the ground state recombination, but it's very strongly suppressed by a factor of 10 to the 9 or so, which means that the rate, or 10 to the 8, the rate, uh, which is 6 times 10 to the 8 per second of this up and down, is is diminished to something like a few per second or 10 per second. So that makes it very interesting, uh, uh, because uh, the normally completely negligible process of two-photon emission from the 2S to the ground state becomes comparable. This process has a emission rate or transition rate of 8 per second. And um, that's, as I said, it's very comparable to the the effective uh, transition rate between the 2p and the 1s state. And um, the photons are emitted you know, at half of the lamin alpha frequencies, so they're really immediately out. There's no problem there for these photons uh, that they are re-exciting the atom or something. So if you make the numbers, you find that something like, you know, 50, nearly 50, or one should be proud of the 2s state, 60% um, uh, uh, of all electrons which went to the ground state of, of hydrogen atom are really made it through the uh, two-photon transition, you know, some transition which normally nobody cares about. Similar story in planetary nebulas, uh, where here the expansion of the universe is ex- extremely important because things are happening on very large cosmological distances. So if you do these kind of calculations, you already find that you know, the, the recombination is very much uh, longer it takes much longer, it's, it's really delayed quite a bit, and um, it is out of equilibrium, which is the good news for, for recombination lines. And this picture, uh, which I just explained, with the 2S uh, decay being the controlling, or one of the controlling uh, channels, was, you know, was already uh, known and um, understood by, by these gentlemen. Uh, Vladimir Kurt was a UV observer, and uh, Rashid was talking about some uh, equilibrium recombination, according to, to uh, Gamow, in Sternberg Institute. And uh, then this guy came to him and asked him, well, I don't understand this. Where are all the Lyman alpha photons going? And uh, that made him and, and Seldovich think about uh, you know, how this uh, is actually happening and uh, why, uh, you know, how, how do you get rid of all these Lyman alpha photons. And then they realized that they, you, know, you have to be more careful with that. <clears throat> and uh, Jim Peebles, Uh, practically at the same time, after hearing about these kind of calculations, uh, confirmed their results as well and uh, got very similar answers and also with very beautiful, you know, deep, uh, more, um, how to say, um, deep insights. Okay, and uh, just uh, wanted to finish off, of course, um, if you're, if you're doing just two-level, uh, two, um, three-level hydrogen atom, that's not the full story. You have to include you know, more shells. And you get your di- dynamics being different. And, and that's important for the CMB anisotropies. But there's no time to talk about it. And if you want to do even better, if you really want to get accurate prediction, uh, predictions for the uh, emission as well, you have to include you know, other processes, which is like a huge list of you know things. And Chris and, and his uh, people, they have been working on this a lot. Um, it's all at, uh, atomic physics, uh, radiative transfer, and all these kind of things affect not only the recombination dynamics, but also the recombination spectrum at a level which you know is interesting, uh, um, at least, uh, uh, yeah. OK. So as I said, uh, this would be another talk, to, And I think we maybe will hear a bit, a bit about it to just explain how this is important for the recombination dynamics. Uh, but they also affect, and I will show one example uh, in this talk, uh, they also affect the um, you know, shapes of the lines, which I'm going to talk about. So now I have sort of said what this recombination is about. And now let's ask the question, what about these photons? Well, if you just make simple numbers, you say, OK, there's 30.6 EV of, fo- uh, of, fo- uh, of energy released during recombination at pressure 1,000 in form of photons, and just look at the perturbation in energy density; you immediately get a number. Just because there's so few bions, you get a very small number—10 uh, to the minus 9, 10 to the minus 8 uh, energy density uh, distortion. And the good thing is that this, this, these, uh, this injection of photons is happening at, r- at redshifts where, you know, there's no Bremsstrahlung really important anymore. There's no double Compton; as long ago. Uh, there's Compton. Oh, Compton scattering is not um, not very efficient. so you actually have no chance to really thermalize to get into the game of you know digesting these photons. So these photons should be there. and they should be you know small, admittedly small distortion, although if you look at the distortion close to the lyman alpha frequency, frequencies, it's a huge distortion, and uh, we will see this uh, later. And this was already emphasized and realized by you know these people who were who are working on on recombination initially. And then Viktor Dubrovich uh, came along and said, in 1975 well you know all these captures to highly excited states they should also lead to some emission at low frequencies because the electrons can cascade down in, in you know very small delta n steps and go to the ground state and emit uh, several photons at low frequencies and here's here's a list of people who you know in the previous years uh, have been sort of working on both recombination uh, hydrogen recombination spectrum and helium recombination spectrum and the important thing to say here is that you know most of these calculations were done before you know uh, pre concordance uh, uh, calculations so they were far off uh, what one would expect nowadays uh, from what we know from the cmb it- itself and all the cosmological uh, probes and then also these these computations were all uh, rather rough um, uh, in the sense of you know if you compared some of them with each other, they really got quite different answers with negative features and all the kind of things which turn out to be sort of not uh, completely accurate. And certainly, one of the reasons was because it was just computationally pretty prohibitive uh, to solve these kind of uh, large, you know, um, multi level recombination problems. And also, one interesting thing only very recently, accurate atomic data for helium, the low, you know, the first few ten shells has been really, you know, made publicly available. Of course, people know this, uh, uh, how to calculate this already quite long, but um, you know, somebody who wants to use it like me, it's 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 much nicer to have just these tables, and you're uh, you know, you're immediately able to compute uh, some more precise uh, spectrum. So uh, this is um, some of the results uh, which I which uh, Rashid and I were publishing. On this recombination spectrum, uh, where we did 100 shell hydrogen atom uh, with continuum, and we 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 solved the the problem of all these coupled differential equations, uh, where we uh, followed each uh, angular momentum substate separately. And if you look at you know the spectral distortion, it's really the change in the uh, blackbody intensity as a function of frequency, which we would observe today after redshifting from redshift 1000 to uh, you know, of zero, you, you can see that at high frequencies, really high frequencies, you, you get your Lyman-alpha line. You get uh, the 2s to photon continuum, which you, know, you can see here. And it would just go down like this here. And then you get your barmer alpha, uh, alpha Passion bracket and all these kind of lines. They, they start overlapping because the duration of recombination starts to be, become longer um, in comparison to the frequency width separation between these lines. So that they merge to a continuum here, but there's several, you know, of these um, uh, recombination lines uh, clearly visible. Then, if you include the bound-bound, uh, sorry, the, ba- the bound-free continuum as well, which actually people uh, before have not been really considering, uh, you find as well that you can see the Balmer continuum, passion bracket, and so on. Lyman continuum is completely blocked, as I mentioned earlier, because it's just you know directly digested. And um, the width of these lines is much larger, because uh, uh, the continuum uh, is not a resonance, but it's, uh, um, as we all know, this 1 over uh, nu to the third. And um, you, again, merge to, a, cont- to a, a full overlapping continuum at low frequencies. And if you take the sum, then you find that you know, the continuum actually contributes something like 30% on average to the whole emission in the, in the recombination radiation. And in some frequencies, you can see clearly there's a continuum sticking out, you know, here, and then there's a bump here, and you know, it's uh, the continuum itself um, does something interesting. Uh, and some number which Rashid is always very uh, happy to mention, there's something like five photons created per baryon in this process because uh, you're you're capturing to the highly excited states and you can emit photons, many photons per one recombination. Well, many it is at the end, on average, five uh, per hydrogen atom. And um, for observers, it's more interesting to ask the question, how is this actually relative to the CMB? And um, in the very high frequency part, in the Wien region, you can see that this is a huge excess over you know, uh, the black body. It's actually going four orders of magnitudes above the black body itself. This is just the relative uh, distortion uh, relative to the CMB black body. Um, however, in that re- region, people will immediately probably argue that it's very hopeless to do something because the cosmic infrared background is very dominant there and has itself very many features. And you know, this is at the end of the day just the Lyman alpha line, so there's no really easy way to distinguish this probably. Then, if you go to the you know close to the maximum of the black body around 150 gigahertz today, um, you see that the distortion is pretty small, as expected from the simple numbers. However, there's strong variability here. And I mean, just thinking about these gravitational wave guys who are, you know, they have some templates, and then they just dig in the noise with you know, accurate templates. Similar thing might be possible here, but you know, of course, that's uh, sort of the question we are probably going to discuss uh, uh, very much uh, during this meeting as well. And then if you go to low frequencies, you see there's a lot of, there's still variability, and there's also within, you know, a decade of uh, of a frequency, or even an octave of a frequency, you have many of these features. And you can, you you know, here's just, uh, it's multiplied by the main slope, so that you can see that there is, you know, like four features between one and two gigahertz, for example, and then one and three. You know, you you see several of these um, oscillatory uh, um, uh, features, which are really coming from the uh, time dependence of the recombination process. And here they are reaching, an interesting, even in absolute terms, an interesting level, because Kobe Firas 10 to minus 5 in y, okay, that's a factor of, you know, that's sort of here, but a factor of 100 or even a factor of 1,000 deeper in absolute terms is something which, at least according to people like uh, uh, John Mather and Fixen and and, uh, and people around Firas 2 type of experiments are sort of hoping to be achieving. So. If there is no y distortion, then maybe at least you know, there will be some 10 to the minus 7 uh, you know, distortion coming from the recombination dynamics. Um, at very low frequencies, 3.3, again, will kick in and will absorb photons. This is not this kind of particular absorption. This is just because of our incompleteness of the computation because it was only 100 shells. Um, now we are able to do 350 shells and uh, get this kind of spectrum. I just didn't have time to um, update the plots. Um, okay, so here's something which I sort of made red. It's hard to mimic by astrophysical foregrounds. It's, it's having, you know, this particular frequency pattern, and that might be, you know, the k- kind of key thing which allows to uh, distinguish it from other, uh, other things. Okay, I wanted to mention, how much time do I have? It's not too much. Okay, I, wo- I won't mention this. Okay, where, where does, uh, does this, uh, this emission come from? The recombination dynamics influences these CMB anisotropies, which is sort of created at the last scattering sef- surface. This visibility function, which has a peak at redshift 1100, roughly 300, 000, uh, 370, 380 thousand years after the Big Bang. These recombination lines from hydrogen, they come, you know, at redshifts they appear some some time earlier. The main emission is coming from redshift 1400, actually so you're you're getting some information if you look at these lines from some earlier times in some sense what about helium well naively you would say well forget about helium 8% in number density well even okay 8% is not so it's not so much a small correction however there's two epochs of helium recombination which immediately you know makes boosts up to a factor of, by a factor of 2 uh, and yeah uh, then there's also the fact that helium Um, especially helium-2, recombines faster, because uh, it is much more close to to the Saha uh, recombination rate. And uh, you get more narrow features with a larger amplitude. Um, Electron scattering then, again, because at redshift 7,000, electron scattering is still important, broadening of lines and so on. You you have to include that. Uh, That wipes out this kind of distortion a bit more and broadens it again, but still you, you can see uh, that these uh, features are a bit more narrow than uh, during hydrogen recombination. And then there's also the, the nice thing that, you know, helium, t- helium uh, neutral helium recombination has a very different dynamics and also a completely different spectrum. It's not hydrogenic uh, uh, helium. So you get non, uh, non uh, trivial amplification of features and, and these kind of things. And then there's also something which. I wanted to talk about tomorrow, um, there's the processing of photons. Helium photons are emitted at, at higher frequencies than the threshold of Lyman alpha, uh, of, of, of hydrogen uh, ionization threshold. And then when they redshift, they can feed back on hydrogen and thereby produce per ionizing photon from helium uh, additional photons in the hydrogen. And actually, that boosts, again, uh, the kind of features. And the great thing is this may open, in principle, a way to directly see helium by, you know, by identifying these kind of features. In the spectrum, here's just a plot to remind people about the Grottian diagram, uh, how this looks for helium. That it's not hydrogenic, and I'm out of time, but I should be still pushing a bit more. Um, So this is just to show that there is actually features in the combined helium and hydrogen recombination spectrum. There's features which are really distinctly coming from helium. These are these are rather high frequencies around uh, you know uh, passion and Balmer, but then also at low frequencies there's you know non-trivial superposition of these lines. You get shifts in the positions and also the widths. If you look at this in more detail, you can, you can see that there's you know, small changes which, which might be you know, indicative of, of, of helium, helium uh, in the universe. And the idea of how to you know, maybe think about this is uh, in the business of an- anisotropies, you're looking at different directions of the sky and comparing the temperatures. You're doing a differential measurement, scanning over you know, angle in this uh you know for the wiggles uh frequency dependent wiggles on the on the spectrum, you might just think about it in the same way, but you're now comparing different frequencies and doing a differential measurement which would you know be a different approach than measuring really the absolute amplitude of these uh, distortions but looking at the differential spectrum and um, if you look at the amplitude of these distortions then of course the, the modulated part is not very large it's only like uh, you know um, uh, I, I, I haven't looked at the 350 shell uh, uh, computations, because depending on the completeness of the hydrogen atom, you get larger variability at low frequencies. And maybe there's, uh, there's something increasing a bit at, at, at frequencies of around 1 gigahertz, for example. But um, the typical amplitude is like if, you know, 30 nanok or something in the variability part, which is, of course, very hard to do. Um, the absolute amplitude, on the other hand, is of the order of micro k at one gigahertz already, which is you know, something which is maybe, at least in the absolute terms, not, not, so, uh, not so crazy. And the good thing is you have a, a template for these distortions. At least if you think you understand the recombination process well, you will see you, know, you can compute these lines and you can just dig in, in, the, you know, in the noise, for example, as I explained uh, close to the maximum of the, of the CMB black body. And then the spectrum is the same in any direction of the sky, um, at least uh, uh, to first order. And these lines are practically unpolarized, which might be another re- way to, to disentangle them from other, other astrophysical sources. And um, this is basically my finishing slide. Um, you can, it's pretty obvious, but I will Talk about this tomorrow in more detail as well. You can do cosmology in principle with it. Most interestingly, you can, you know, get directly prime audio pre-stellar unreprocessed, like you know, pure helium uh, measurement in some sense if you would do these kind of observations, which is you know, pretty interesting um, to put bounds on Big Bang uh, nucleosynthesis models and kind of stuff. And then also, you know, what if Chris uh, forgot something in his recombination calculations, or oh, uh, and and and. Uh, you can, in principle, directly check if you know, these recombination calculations are right or if something non-standard happened there that will show up, and currently the predictions are limited by actually atomic data. Collisional rates are not so uh, precise that you can really do something um, uh, extremely accurate there. And sneak preview uh, is this here. You can you know, look at non-standard uh, thermal histories, and this should leave some, distor- some changes in these uh, spectral lines. And um, recombination dynamics can be reconstructed. And you can even, you know, things like asking the question, where did the y-distortion, if we would see something, 10 to minus 6y, certainly something which is expected from low redshift universe, uh, where did it actually come from? If you just have a mean y-distortion on the whole sky, there's a very diffi- it's very difficult to date it. When did it come, where did it come from? But with these uh, lines, you might be able to see um, if the Y distortion was at least created before recombination, I will explain that as well tom- tomorrow. And dark annulation should leave some signatures, and uh, you should be able to get some constraints on these, <coughs> on different energy injection histories. This is the slide which I wanted to leave you with, just to show you the helium lines appear even earlier than the hydrogen lines. They come from redshift 2000 and redshift 6000, and it's really interesting to think about the possibility if there's energy injection here or here, or here. You know, In between these epochs, you already know that there will be some different response from you know, these lines. So uh, I guess that's where I will stop, and thank you for your patience. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.